0: We answer Reload members' questions on the legal, political, and cultural aspects of guns in America on this week's episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of the Reload.com, where you can head over and pick up a membership today if you want to support our reporting or you can sign up for our free newsletter where you'll be kept up to date on all the latest gun news in America with really just one email a week we don't we don't crowd your inbox we try to keep things uh, nice and smooth for you and uh, we don't we don't send you a million emails that's for sure uh, that's part of our, our commitment here. But this week, we are answering members' questions. Those people who buy those memberships uh, are the ones who get to ask us about what's going on, and, and uh, we're going to try to address a number of their different uh, questions. So with me, I have contributing writer Jake Fogelman. How are you doing, Jake?
1: I'm doing pretty good, Steve. I'm excited to do a Q&A. It's been a little while since we've got to interact with our members and hear what's on their mind and try to answer some of their questions. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it.
0: Yeah, same here. You know, I, I think our members are really uh, knowledgeable. I you know, hopefully because they're reading our <laughs> our <laughs> reporting a lot, but or maybe that's hopefully that's reflective of, of the quality of our reporting. But they're the they're, they're very uh, intelligent folks, and they always have really good questions. So uh, I don't think this episode is any different in that regard. Uh, so why don't you start us off with the first one? I think we got to start off easy. Start off with some simple stuff that often gets glossed over, right?
1: Yeah, no, I think it is a shrewd question here we got from Frank Phillips asking sort of about what the legal ease means, putting it into layman's terms. So he, for example, he wants to know, you know, what's a stay, what's an injunction when we're talking about these gun cases, and and how do we know when a when a gun issue is over and decided other than the Supreme Court? Uh, so if you want to take a stab at, at some of these legal ease terms, yeah,
0: that, and that's a good question because it's important, uh, and I try to keep this in mind whenever we're writing about this stuff. You, know, you try to uh frame this in a way that makes sense to people because i think you get a lot of news out there of oh a stay or uh, like an injunction comes down and people assume that the law is blocked and doesn't you know the case is over or or something like that and and uh, that's not always true right in fact usually it's not true uh, at least not in the practical immediate sense right and and so you what you'll get are oftentimes uh, two different rulings that have the effect of blocking a law, right? One is a temporary restraining order, right? Which is, uh, that's something that gets issued quickly. Uh, that, that's something that you know, plaintiffs request for that first. If there's a law that's about to go into effect and they think it harms their constitutional rights, they can ask for a temporary restraining order. And if the judge agrees with them, he will issue one and effectively that will stop the law from going into effect, right. Uh, before it, before it has actually, uh, begun basically. And preliminary injunction on the other hand is, uh, it's very, you know, they're similar to be honest with you. They're, they're similar ideas, but the preliminary injunction is a little bit more, uh, down the line in a court case generally. Uh, and, uh, You know you essentially um, get one of those after you've argued the case and uh, the judge has decided it so um, it it has a little bit more um, finality to it than a tro however both of these can come with what's called a a stay usually they do um it as long you know if the the party that loses especially the government in most cases the government is requesting an appeal and a stay when they've lost a case at a certain level of the court system, like the very first level, you know, these district courts in the, the federal system uh, they'll usually ask for a stay and they'll ask for uh, an appeal, like stay pending appeal. Right. And so um, and, uh, and oftentimes you'll get rulings where they just automatically put a stay on it for a certain number of days pending, you know, to give the, The government time to appeal the decision Um, and so a stay basically negates the 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 ruling and and so effectively it keeps things as they were Um, and that's usually what courts are going for is to try and maintain the status quo while the the lawsuit plays out so if the law is already in effect they're most likely going to leave it in effect until the, the the final ruling in a case, until one side effectively gives up or the Supreme Court rules on the issue ultimately or you know, denies cert or whatever. And so, uh, you know, if the law isn't in effect yet and plaintiffs have convinced the judge that they'd be harmed by it, then the judge is going to try to preserve that status quo the law not going into effect while this case plays out. Um, So hopefully that gives some basic insight into what these things mean um, and how they come to an end. Ultimately, yes, it's either one side gives up or uh, honest, and especially in the federal court and even state courts, because if you get to the state Supreme Court and lose there, if federal law is implicated in some way, if the Constitution is implicated, for instance, the Bill of Rights, you can also take that ruling to the Supreme Court. Um, of the United States. So uh, ultimately, a lot of these things, in theory, if everyone keeps fighting, they would end when the Supreme Court either denies cert, says we're not going to consider this case at all, uh, or it grants cert, and then it takes on the case. And the ultimate outcome of that, obviously, can't be
1: uh, appealed any further.
0: Did I get that right? Yeah. What do you think?
1: Jake? Yeah, no, I, I think you nailed it. I think that- uh, hopefully hopefully, that's clarifying uh for frank and and like you said it's good to always be reminded that sometimes people don't know what these arcane legal terms mean when we're talking about big gun rulings so yeah it's a good question good question
0: and it could be very confusing too because like especially like a tro right it's not a ruling on the merits a lot of times these aren't rulings on the merits after the case has been heard and argued um but at the same time if you get a tro it's because the judge thinks that you're gonna win on the merits. Right. Right. A, a temporary restraining order, that means that the judge is very confident that you will win on the merits part. And so it's, in practice, they're kind of the
1: same thing, right? Right. Um, but we'll see the next question here. We got uh, a series of questions actually for a lot of, a lot of our members are very interested in what's going on with pen, various pending court cases. So this first one here from David. Uh, Mm -hmm. he wants to know what's taking so long with the Bianchi case out of Maryland, which is the assault weapon ban case that the Supreme court, uh, granted vacated and remanded after it decided the Bruin case last June, uh, sent it back to, to the fourth circuit and said, reconsider this case under the new Bruin test. And we still haven't had a decision. So he wants to know, you know, what the heck's taken so long. And he also asks about, you know, various other cases around the country because it's sort of a similar situation there. Um. So do we have any special insight on what's taking the court so long?
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, do uh, yeah, do you? I was going to say it's, it's.
1: I don't really have a you know a, a line to, to the minds of these judges. Um, uh, unfortunately, that's just sort of the way it is, especially in the federal court system. Um, it's also worth yeah. keeping in mind that it's it's only been a year, right? And in legal terms, a year is right. not that long for legal cases. Uh, you know, for for most people that are on the edge of their seat, you know, wanting to hear the conclusion of these cases that can feel like an eternity, but in the grand scheme of things, that's not uncommon, uh, in the legal system. Um, so it's just kind of one of those things where you have to wait and see, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very similar to the Supreme court itself where, you know, that you can try and read tea leaves, but oftentimes it's a black box. What goes on inside of there. So why they take the cases they take or, why the they do it in the order that they do it, and uh, why it takes you know so long for some of these uh, lower courts to issue rulings? Uh, you know, you could think, well, maybe it's some sort of strategic thing. Maybe the uh, <clears throat> maybe the Second Circuit, I believe that is, or what is it, the Fourth Circuit? Sorry, in the Maryland case, where they don't want to be the ones to issue the ruling because they think their ruling is. Uh, not likely to survive at the Supreme Court um, and they're not willing to you know, adjust their thinking or maybe they want to see what the, you know, it, it could be similar to what's going on with the Supreme Court itself with these uh, GBRs granting, vacating rem- and remanding certain cases. Uh, you know, I think they do that because they want to see how the lower courts handle these things, what arguments come up uh, and what opinions get drawn. And so maybe part of the the waiting for a number of these cases, there's there's a number that are you know where you've waited months since arguments have been held and there's still no decision. They might be trying to uh, suss out how the courts are are coalescing on these different cases. Uh, That could be part of it. I mean, you would hopefully that's not it, but that's you know wouldn't be. Outside the realm of possibility that there's a sort of strategic litigating going on with how these decisions are made. I mean, you can see that, in my opinion, in the Illinois Supreme Court case about this, their assault weapons ban, um, where the the court, you, you could blame this on the way that the plaintiffs argued the case, but the court sidestepped the Second Amendment issue altogether, and um, you know, by doing that, they kind of reset the clock on. The, the, any potential Second Amendment challenge, at least in the state courts, to uh, their Sullivan's ban. And I think one at least benefit side, you know, side benefit of doing that is they don't ha- risk the chance of having that case go to the Supreme Court and being overturned. Because I think a lot of these right. just don't want to have a record where they're constantly being overturned. Um, so uh, it could be that you, you have Benitez, too in California, which I believe uh, David asked about him in the same vein. And, yeah, I mean, I don't know why. <laughs> nobody <laughs> nobody knows. He doesn't tell you, right? Um, but maybe he's waiting to see how the Ninth Circuit, how some of these other courts are, are handling the Bruin decision and the Bruin standard. Uh, you know, his previous rulings had kind of anticipated this history and tradition test that came down in Bruin. You know that, that wasn't a brand new creation of the Supreme Court in 2022, right? This was a, a concept that had been floating around in the lower courts for a while. Kavanaugh was kind of the one who who uh, coined it back in the second Heller, uh, DCB Heller case, uh, where he was uh, in a dissenting opinion. But you know, Bruen or uh, Benitez in California had already used that. Basic logic or the basic standard to strike down. I think it was the magazine uh, law, their magazine limit. So, uh, you know, it's not like he isn't familiar with the the case law or the the concept. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know why he's waiting. <laughs> it's a lot to say. I don't know. I guess
1: right. But this kind of brings. But uh, to- we haven't.
0: An- we have another question here.
1: I was going to say to yeah. the kind of similar, both uh, David had another question and Paul uh, about two separate cases that might have, you know, be a little bit more satisfying for folks watching this stuff. So Paul asks about the Second Circuit when they might rule on New York's Bruin response carry case. And then David asks about uh, the timeline of the Seventh Circuit. uh, And uh, that's the federal case dealing with Illinois assault weapon ban. And I think what's interesting about those two is that, The Supreme Court has already kind of established that they're watching those cases, because in both cases, there was an attempt to get emergency or early intervention from the Supreme Court. Uh, And so in both cases, they were put on expedited review is what they call it. (laughs) And, you know, people shouldn't get Mm -hmm. over their skis about what expedited means. That still means, you know, several months instead of, you know, over a year or what what have you. But it's a good chance that you might see rulings in those cases perhaps earlier than some of the other federal cases that are going around right now just because of that fact.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, you could still have the same basic complaint about the Second Circuit, right? They're supposed to be on this expedited schedule, but we haven't seen anything from them yet. Um, but I, and I do think that you're making a really good overall point here about the, you know, court time. Court time is not the same as as uh, the time the rest of us run on, right? These cases can usually take years to. To process through the courts. Um, and I, you know, a lot of people, once they saw the Bruin ruling come down and they, uh, I think a lot of gun rights advocates saw that as a very favorable standard and, um, took it as the courts, you know, recommitting to focusing on this issue. And there's some people get this expectation that they're just going to take five or six second amendment cases a year. And like, that's not realistic in my mind, at least, you know, I mean, first of all, they've already taken another second amendment case just a year after the last one. Now they have a lot to make up for, right? Because there's only been what I think it's six now Supreme court cases that deal directly with the second amendment. And only a couple of those have produced actual uh, rulings that are, are, you know, significant precedent, uh, whereas you look at the First Amendment or the Fourth Amendment or Fourteenth Amendment or <laughs> many of these other uh, uh, amendments to the Constitution have had so many more cases, <laughs> hundreds and right. hundreds of cases for the court to, uh, you know, opine on the limits of the, uh, the protections offered there or what have you. And so, you know, they have a long way to go, but at the same time, I, I don't think that means they're going to just Try to make it make all that ground up in a year,
1: right? Right. No, that's a good point. And that, I mean, that also kind of ties in to the we have a sort of a, a litany of questions, uh, both from David and then a few yeah, other about members Court, right? about Weird Beard that they, they want to know, you know, what are we thinking in terms of the Supreme Court? Are they going to take more cases? What, what are the odds that they're going to take the, you know, Illinois assault weapon ban case after it's decided by the Seventh Circuit? Uh, do we think the Supreme Court's waiting to combine a few? Second Amendment cases at once to issue just one sweeping ruling. Um, yeah, I don't know. What do you think? It's it's like you kind of you answered part of it there. I think yeah. in, your, in your previous answer, but it, it's tough to say. We're expecting the Supreme Court to make up you know all this ground in in a matter of a, a year or two, right? <laughs> <laughs> right,
0: certainly. And you um, have one. I they're not going to take any more Second Amendment cases for this session. Like that, they're they're done on the. Uh, regular docket, at least, for the cases they're going to take up. There's some speculation that they could, um, you know, uh, take up range in the the nonviolent felon case out of Pennsylvania um, and sort of combine that with Rahimi, which is the, the domestic violence restraining order case that they've already agreed to hear uh, and do sort of a low-end, high-end thing on, you know, the limits of, uh, who, who can and can't be barred from owning guns under the second amendment. But, uh, maybe that'll happen. I, I don't think that's likely what's, what's more likely. Cause they're already, they're already through the period where they decided what cases they're going to take for the next session. And we're going to get a ruling in Rahimi. We'll get arguments this fall in Rahimi and we'll get a, a ruling, probably not until June of next year because they usually wait until June to issue the most controversial ones? I, I don't know. It depends on whether the court thinks their ruling in that case is going to be controversial or not. I, also that's another like tea leaf reading thing. They don't say that anywhere, right? right. Supreme Court's <laughs> not like, oh we're gonna wait until it just so happens people notice that that's when they tend to issue the biggest cases. Um, yeah, the ones that have you know five, four split or six, three split or whatever. And so because like, most, most Supreme Court cases, by the way, if people didn't know, are unanimous. The, these guys agree on most of these cases most of the time. It's just the particularly politically charged ones that end up being, uh, you know, the courts being split. But regardless, uh, the, the other option is that they could take something on what people call the shadow docket, which are these emergency requests. That's sort of when we when you mentioned earlier those uh, emergency requests in the second circuit case and the seventh circuit case to intervene in, uh, by the, by the court, or even just the recent ghost gun, uh, case where the government asked the court to intervene on an emergency basis. Uh, that that's what people call a shadow docket because often they'll make decisions like they did in the ghost gun case to issue a stay or, you know, take some sort of action without explaining why they did it. And it could have really significant implications. Uh, down the line, but you don't get an actual hearing. You don't get oral arguments. You don't get a a written opinion from the court. You just get, you know, an emergency decision. Uh, So there's still that avenue to work on this stuff. I think it would be quite odd if they chose to bolster their Second Amendment case law this way, you know, by just issuing uh, unexplained shadow docket decisions, but that's right. another way that they could go.
1: Yeah, I think especially on something like an assault weapon ban, which is obviously a hugely hot button, you talk about, you know, controversial yeah. political stuff. And it's, I, I highly doubt hardware bans, which is something that's obviously going to sort of be ripe and on the minds of a lot of Second Amendment lawyers and, and jurisprudence over the next you know, few years or however long it takes to get a final ruling. I I highly doubt that they're going to issue that in some, you know, unsigned shadow docket opinion. Um, So I wouldn't count on that. But where you might see something, uh, one of our members asks, uh, Weird Beard, by the way, great. Oh, actually, no, this was David. Sorry. He asked about the pistol brace. Yeah, David Rice was, he asked,
0: yeah, what do you think? The pistol brace is, where's that case at right now, actually, first of all?
1: Yeah. So, so first of all, uh, we had a series of injunctions issued by a district court, uh, but he did not issue nationwide injunctions um, in each of the cases. He limited the scope of those orders blocking the pistol-based rule to just the members of the individual gun mm-hmm. rights groups that sued. Um, and so that was then appealed right. to the Fifth Circuit, who took a look at the merits of the appeal, to the merits panel. of the injunctions, yeah. yeah, to a three-judge panel of the Fifth Circuit. And they basically said that... In so many words, they think that this rule is likely not fit to stand and probably should be struck down, but they weren't going to overstep the bounds of the district court and issue that injunction themselves. So they basically spelled out for, uh, for the lower court judge why they think that this rule is probably unlawful. And then they sent it back to him for him to issue a nationwide injunction. Um which you know basically just means please yeah. enjoy this so we don't have to in which case you could very well see a yeah very and by similar... the way oh go ahead
0: uh by the way yeah the the uh that's another common thing that you'll see in federal courts where they they issue a ruling but the ruling itself technically is is to remand the case back down to a lower court for them to issue the final injunction or whatever and it's like technically they haven't issued an injunction here but they've told the lower court to issue an injunction and it's kind of the same thing uh, yeah, well, yeah that's how i look at it at least in terms of reporting on this stuff
1: yeah that's a good point yeah it's, it's very you'll see this a lot with federal judges they're usually sticklers for procedure and they give deference to the due process of of litigation so they allow you know the proper judge to make the final call which you'll yeah it's quite common but what what you're going to see i think in this pistol brace uh case if the district judge heeds the uh judgment of the fifth circuit uh you'll probably see a very similar trajectory to what we just saw with the so-called ghost gun rule where of course doj is probably going to appeal any injunction against their own rule right it's their job to defend their rule and they'll probably depending on the fifth circuit's already indicated at least that they don't seem keen on staying it so you could very well see that end up on the supreme court shadow docket where they could be in a position to make a similar decision to what they made with the ghost gun rule.
0: Yeah. Although, although I, I would actually expect the fifth circuit to kind of take a hint from the, what the Supreme court just did with the ghost gun case. And they'll probably issue a stay until, uh, uh, you know, until they get to the final um, merits decision in, in that case. So that's a good, point. Uh, but I do still expect that, that they'll make it, all the way up to the Supreme Court at some, the government's gonna appeal that, just like they're gonna appeal the ghost gun one. You know, the government wanted uh, the Supreme Court to take up the ghost gun case and skip over the Fifth Circuit altogether. Uh, The Supreme Court didn't do that, but that was the big ask uh, from the government. The fallback was to to issue the stay, which which the Supreme Court did. Um, So I, I don't think there's any doubt that the government's gonna try to take all of these cases or maybe, you know, though, it might not matter if they take up like the ghost gun case, it's going to be on the same basic grounds as the pistol brace case anyway. So the our decision in that case would, uh, would be, you know, would foretell whatever they were going to decide in the, the bump stock ban case or the pistol ban pistol brace ban case too. So they might not just need to get one there, but I would expect they'd try to get all of them.
1: Yeah, um, no, next question. Those no. good points.
0: We have, uh, yeah, we've got Adam uh, Scavone, Scavone? Uh, David Rice is a simpler name, uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> um, I shouldn't say anything, right? Stephen Gutowski. I don't think that's right. Uh, that's Vogel much harder over here. than any yeah. of our members' names in there. <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, he's got a good question about the latest on the legal drama surrounding cannabis and firearms. Um, there was actually a, a recent filing by the DOJ in uh, in a fairly interesting case, at least politically, out of Florida that was uh, filed by Nikki Freed, who, uh, you know, she ran against, she went in the, in the primary against DeSantis. Anyway, she's the agricultural commissioner there, which for, in Florida uh, for some, strange old political reason. That's the the office that controls concealed carry permitting in, in the state. Um, I'm sure there was some sort of a very interesting story behind why that got moved to that department at some point in Florida history. But regardless, uh, she filed suit to um, try and uh, invalidate the federal prohibition on uh, marijuana users owning firearms, uh, at least the ones that have a medical marijuana you know, license or card or, or what have you. So uh, in that case, DOJ just filed a brief uh, that essentially said they disagree with the um, recent uh, federal appeals court case that found this prohibition is unconstitutional generally um, and obviously, the, this has gotten some discussion surrounding Hunter Biden, his potential gun charge, uh, which uh, seems more likely than ever to happen because of uh, the, his plea deal blowing up. But yeah, this, so there's some interesting stuff to talk about here with the latest on these cases. Um, you know, uh, it sure seems like there are uh, this prohibition is uh, having very hard time. Surviving the Bruin standard.
1: Yeah, no, I think it's probably a a pretty safe bet that the federal court system is is casting a very skeptical eye, especially under this new Bruin standard of, you know, not just weed, but all sorts of. You're seeing all sorts of controlled substances cases kind of work their way through the lower federal courts. We've had a couple of district federal courts. um, One in Oklahoma was about weed, but another one that we've covered in Texas was about more than weed, there was some yep. magic mushrooms involved, there was methamphetamine involved. So the whole controlled substances space doesn't seem to, to survive strict scrutiny, because, you know, historically, there were some prohibitions on using your guns while actively intoxicated, for example, a lot of times it was like, you can't show up to your militia muster while being drunk. Right. Um, so that's a pretty good analog for, you know, you can't have a gun while you're high or something. But a lot of the courts are coming to the conclusion that there's really no historical federal law about if you've ever drank alcohol or something, you can't own a gun. And that's sort of where these cases are sort of are, are, are withering on the vine in the federal court system. So I think it's, it's fair to say that the courts are casting a skeptical eye sort of as the political environment is also shifting towards greater uh, acceptance of at least marijuana. You know, We have 20 something states now that have legalized it recreationally, another 30 to 40 that have legalized it medically. And so it is, I think it's a fascinating time for not just the legal cases, but to see them collide with the political realities. Um, it's just it's sort of an interesting time for, the, for this space.
0: Yeah, you also saw the same basic argument pop up in uh, that Hawaii um, Sensitive Places case when they were. That's right. the, the judge was talking about um, you know, carrying in restaurants that serve alcohol. It's sa- sort of the same throughput. A lot of these cases, and you know, that's kind of the nature of Bruin. Uh, Because a lot of these cases are going to rely on the same laws because there weren't that many regulations. Obviously, there were gun regulations, but uh, a lot of them, uh, they weren't as numerous as they are today, certainly. And so a lot of them are going to come up in a lot of these different circumstances. Uh, You also saw this, by the way, uh, and I wrote a whole analysis piece on this for members. um, But this shows up in the government's case, their brief in Rahimi in the domestic violence restraining order case as a warning to the Supreme Court about how expansive the effects could be if they go with the Fifth Circuit's reasoning, uh, if they go with the Fifth Circuit's interpretation of Bruin uh, in the Rahimi case, because uh, that's already led to, um, for instance, uh, drug users, uh, at least marijuana users, being, uh, kept from, uh, or being allowed to keep their firearms, uh, striking down this law. So I'm getting a little bit, uh, put together on it, but that, that's, that came up in, in that scenario as well.
1: Right. Yeah. And it's, it's sort of goes to another analysis piece. And we've talked about this several times in the past about just broadly setting the parameters of who is covered under the second amendment, particularly in the context of this new test. Because we now kind of have the what's covered we don't have it fully fleshed out but we at least have you know you can't ban handguns it's this common instrument of self-defense and heller said you know you can't ban those same thing with carry we said you know we established where where, you can carry in public and we just don't really have a great idea of who just yet and obviously rahimi will depending on how narrowly or broadly they decide to rule will at least whittle away a little bit and give us a better idea of who can be prohibited from owning guns. And that should give us a little bit more indication of um, these some of these marijuana cases that our member brings up here.
0: Yeah, I think that'll give us the beginning of
1: the who. I, I mean, I yeah. still
0: think we're kind of at the beginning of all the who, what, and where questions. Yeah. You know, they're still going to need to flush out all of that stuff under Bruin. And, uh, and so I would, you know, we talked about how they're not likely to take five Supreme Court uh, second amendment cases uh, each year or whatever. But I do think they're going to have to take uh, second amendment cases more frequently than they have in the past just to flush out all these
1: questions. Yeah, I think that's right. All right. Uh, So we'll go to the next question here from Stephen Shepard. And he asks actually a pretty interesting question about sort of the lasting effects of that rise in gun ownership that we talked about over the pandemic years. Um, And he wants to know- Let's.
0: Uh, I want to do this uh, Thomas Schrader question first because I think it ties into what Steven's
1: asked. Oh yeah, I missed I missed his question. Yeah, you're right. Okay. Good call. Uh, it's <laughs> a long
0: long podcast, and we already had some technical problems. We had to do that's, it, so. that's right. You <laughs> know. Hopefully, it doesn't show up on the final. Uh, hopefully, that'll be a mystery to you guys watching at home. But uh, yes, Th- Thomas Schrader asked uh, my question to you. Is what story do you think that's Been underreported that may end up changing things uh, for the Second Amendment movement for better or worse. So I think that uh, the answer to this, at least I have two, and I'm interested in your thoughts as well, but I think that'll roll into Stephen's question too. Um, But uh, why don't you, what are your two, first of all, for better or worse?
1: Yeah, so for better, I think we were kind of on the same page about. There's just not a lot of follow-up done on on that rise of gun ownership that I was kind of alluding to with the previous question. Yeah. Uh, we've, we obviously covered it extensively as it was happening. It was showing up in the data that, look at all these new gun owners, several million new gun owners. And you've seen a smattering of stories here and there, usually in local news about, look at this new the, the, you know gun training is getting more diverse and that sort of thing. But there really hasn't been a ton of reporting on the maybe the political dynamics that that might bring about, uh, which has the potential. We've talked about this pretty extensively over the last few years. Has the potential to shift the politics of of gun rights because you know when you have more people owning guns, you see it reflected in polling data. If you own guns, you're more likely to support, or at least more likely to oppose stricter access to guns or, or overly strict gun laws. And so there hasn't been a ton of. Of at least evidence or, or digging into whether or not that's shifted the needle uh, one way or another. Uh, I know yeah. that's something you thought about as well.
0: Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest undercovered. Like it's something that has gotten some coverage, and we've certainly written a lot about it. And we we even had a piece this week on uh, youth shooting sports and how they're growing uh, at this this moment. And um, uh, I just think that from a like a macro perspective of media, that's not gotten a lot of coverage. It's gotten some, but for the the potential effect that it could have in the long term, it hasn't gotten a, nearly enough attention, in my opinion, um, and probably hasn't gotten enough attention inside the even just the gun owning community or the, or the gun industry itself. Not this isn't to say that it's gotten no attention. It has got it, you know. There's been groups that have come up. There've been uh, efforts by the industry and by gun rights. Uh, advocates to uh, try to connect with these new gun owners that and look this is not a trend that started into 2020 it's more of a trend that accelerated in 2020 but uh, i think that that's the one major story that even with the coverage it has received is still undercovered. it's still uh, underappreciated uh, for the potential impact it could have uh, yeah. and then uh, and what's your what's your story on the other end? Something that doesn't get enough coverage that could have a negative impact on uh, the gun rights movement, at least.
1: Yeah, so it's it's sort of I think it's sort of related to to your negative coverage thing that we we kind of talked about this before we started recording. But there's sort of been an underappreciation, I think, is a better word for it. Of we're still seeing kind of a slip in gun sales. So despite this boom of new gun owners that we saw, maybe they'd be future you know, collectors or spree buyers, we're actually seeing year over year so far this year, uh, multiple months where gun sales are way down. And it's funny that that's happening in a political environment where we have probably the most openly gun control president in maybe ever, but at least yeah. for the last few generations, at right? At least
0: since the 90s. Yeah. At least since yeah.
1: Clinton. Yeah. And, and it's also we're coming up on a presidential election when usually things start to wrap up when, you know, you don't know who, when things are sort of in the air politically, you don't know who's going to take power. You tend to see gun sales spike in those occasions. And we're not really seeing that right now. And it'd be interesting to to know kind of what's behind that. And I think that's sort of underappreciated that maybe are we seeing waning influence in, in gun ownership? It, it, you know, there's just, I think, underexplored what's behind that.
0: Yeah. And I, I think that plays into Stephen's question here. Um, you know, he said, uh, I understood that the net gun owners and ownership increased during the pandemic. And he uh, evidence that they these new gun owners are still engaged, you know, training, shooting, um, you know, other aspects of, of firearms ownership, reloading, competing, collecting, uh, or was it just a fad? Is, is this question? And I think that goes into uh, what you're talking about there. With uh, you know, we we think that these new gun owners represent this potential sea change in. Gun culture and gun politics, but uh, you know how how has that actually played out to this point? Are we still seeing that? And I think that your point there about gun sales declining um, speaks to, I guess, at least some evidence against this idea, because you know certainly you had record sales in twenty twenty, and you had you know the second best sales in twenty twenty one, and then third best in twenty twenty two. Uh, but now we're, st- but each step along, you're in decline. And in 2023, it's continued to decline and somewhat dramatically. You know, we've covered this um, back in June. The numbers were down 20% year over year. That means June's sales numbers. And look, June is a, not a great year or a great month for gun seals. Generally, they tend to decline in, in the summer. Uh, so June compared to April is always going to be worse or compared to December. But when you compare June to June, you're getting more of an apples to apples comparison. And it was 20 percent, 20 percent decline year over year. So that's that's really bad. Um, right. If you're uh, in a member of the gun industry or uh, if you're looking for sustained momentum among new gun owners for, you know, going out and adding to their collection or what have you. Um, and that we saw that trend continue in July, where July was down 17% year over year from the previous July. And, uh, you know, it's not as though we've seen a huge sea change in polling uh, during this time period. If anything, that's actually my uh, undercovered, underappreciated story in the negative direction. If you're a gun rights advocate, polling has been Uh, The the macro trend of polling uh, over the last really decade or more uh, has been going in the wrong direction. Uh, If you're if you if you pose stricter gun laws, because it's been going in favor of stricter gun laws for quite a while. And that includes the sort of ebbs and flows that we talk about with uh, surrounding mass shootings. right? Surrounding high profile events. Um, You tend to get a spike and then a decline back down towards normal levels. However, if you look over a long enough trend line, those lower levels will still be higher than the previous lows. And that's something I think people uh, haven't dealt with a lot in the gun rights uh, movement. And and we have we also haven't seen necessarily a huge shift uh, because of these new gun owners on that point. Yeah. Uh, And so um, you have seen there have been. Uh, some trends that we followed that move in the other direction, right? Assault weapons bans, in particular, it's kind of one of the interesting things about the political dynamics you were talking about with the President Biden, right? He's he's pushing for assault weapons bans, which is really the first time you've seen that from president since Clinton, uh, where they actually passed one. But uh, at the same time, that trend, that, <laughs> I'm sorry. Pulling for that particular policy has dropped and it's yep. dropped among younger people, which are part of this whole gun culture 2.0. Um, you know, although, you know, some people don't think that's the right uh, term for it necessarily, but, uh, but that's neither here nor there. Um, there was another comment we got from a, from, I think it was from Steven himself. who's like, does it really make sense to call these people gun culture 2.0 if they're defined by, wanting self-defense or uh, wanting to do competitive shooting or uh, owning guns for defense from people and from uh, the government or or what have you, because that's really uh, not a new idea in any sense, and uh, maybe even just a reversion back to the 18th and 19th century views of firearms ownership. But regardless, uh, and that's maybe a fair point, but regardless, um, you have seen that effect. But it's it hasn't been much broader than that, in my opinion. What do you think?
1: I know I think it's a shrewd point because it is that the assault weapon ban, historically, if you looked at historical trends and polls, that was one of the main policies to spike in the aftermath of mass shootings. Right. But as you pointed out, we've seen a pretty sticky indication that it's around like fifty percent. We've seen some dip below majority support. You know, multiple polls confirming this. At the same time that other policies, you know, be it red flag laws or I don't know, take your pick. Any other gun control policy have seen a spike at the same time. Um, So on the one hand, you have maybe perhaps a win uh, for gun rights advocates, maybe an underappreciated win on the assault weapons ban polling. But at the same time, as you pointed out, which I think is shrewd, there's sort of an underappreciated worrying sign in the polls where you're seeing. Not great signs. We've covered polls where folks are now for the first time in in over a decade saying it's more important to reduce, quote unquote, reduce gun violence, whatever that means to, to respondents than it is to protect gun rights, for example. So yeah. the, the, the deprioritization of gun rights among the general public, maybe outside of the gun rights movement, I think is something that's not being fully appreciated because there's such a sugar high from the Bruin decision and because court cases are going so well for the gun rights movement at the moment. Sometimes some of that stuff can kind of get lost in the conversation that the polling trends are perhaps slightly worrying
0: I think that's i think that's exa- exactly right I mean if you're a gun control advocate it's they're moving in the right direction but and I'm right. talking here mainly about you know the macro trends like the more yeah. the vibe check stuff like do you want to your gun laws do you prefer? You know, guns, restrictions to gun, preserving gun rights, those sorts of polling questions that don't ask about a specific policy necessarily, um, but about how Americans feel about guns at a given point in time. Those are all trending towards stricter gun laws, Um, and and that's something I don't think has gotten enough attention in, uh, at least in the gun rights movement. People tend not to focus much on that. Um, yeah. It gets a lot of attention, I will say, uh, in major media. Obviously, yeah, the, oh, a lot yeah. of focus there. So maybe it's oh, not yeah. undercovered, and that's in in the sense that there's a lot of media coverage of uh, of those basic numbers. And then and media sort of the opposite happens with the assault ones ban numbers, right? You, you, yeah, I feel like those get a lot of attention in the gun rights community and not much attention in major media. So know. yeah, <laughs> either way, you you want to make sure that you have a full view of what's going on if you. Uh, with any issue, but uh, in particular in this scenario with how people are reacting uh, to these polls and not just rely on um, you know, the ones that make you feel good or the ones that make you feel bad. You got to yeah. try and take them all in. Um, That's a good point. But, the, but Stephen also has another question here about common use. Um, how does the community establish new common use? Let's say a, a new action is developed or an obscure one uh, for instance, he, he notes the Smith and Wesson rotating barrel for five, seven by 28 is brought back. It's not in common use. And so is it now vulnerable to a ban? what happens when laser guns come out or, uh, or, you know, uh, perhaps more realistically, you have rail guns now uh, that, that are new or even smart guns, right? This new, the biofired gun. Uh, that We had the founder on the podcast a while back. That's a, uh, completely new technology in terms of firearms. It's fire by wire. It's not a mechanical trigger system. There's so, and, and clearly not in common use yet, uh, depending on how you look at the question. Right. Right. And so uh, I think that's an interesting thing. Uh, he, Stephen notes the Bruin standard seems muddy about future arms development. And I think that's, that's sort of, that's true. And one of the ironies, I guess, about this um but you know this standard i guess we should just start with where it comes from right where does the common use concept come from um and that comes from miller which is the 1934 decision that upheld the ban on uh, sh- or the inclusion of short barrel rifles in the national firearms act uh, um, because that was the basis for heller Now, this Miller is a very short opinion. There's a lot of interesting history around it and controversy over it. But uh, it really is the the parts that actually uh, matter are fairly short. So people should actually read it. You know, frankly, I think there was a New York Times piece where they tried to sum up what was in Miller and got it completely wrong. And it's like, guys... (laughs) there's only a couple paragraphs you need to read of that ruling. It's (laughs) not like, please just read it. If you're going to write about it. Um, but Miller, Miller essentially talks about, uh, the essential conclusion is that only arms that are useful to in militia service are protected by the second amendment. That's basically what Miller holds. Uh, however, it also holds that essentially the militia was made up of, uh, everyone, you know, all, all able-bodied men were expected to perform militia service at the time and uh, of the founding and that they were expected to show up with their own firearms and so essentially what the second amendment protected were uh, guns that were in common use at the time um, because those are the kinds of guns that people would be expected to show up to muster with and so That's where you get the sort of dangerous and unusual uh, concept. And that's where common use comes from. So basically just Second Amendment protects the guns that people had that they would show up to muster for uh, militia service with. And so how, you know, applying that to. It's sort of a backward looking standard, obviously, that something that is in common use is protected but only once it's become common. (laughs) Um, And so in theory, I guess, you could probably ban newer technologies or, I mean, usually the Supreme Court also has the other, the other aspect of this test, right? It's not just in common use, but also is, are they unusual and dangerous? So basically is the gun that you're trying to ban outside of what most people own and also more dangerous than those firearms. That seems to be the kind of gist of what they're
1: what they're trying to get at with it. That's right. Yeah. And our member I think picks up on probably the probably the chief. Obviously, gun control advocates might have their other critiques of the standard, but this is sort of like the main criticism of the in-common use standard. Is sometimes things are outside of your control for what counts as common. I think your smart gun example is pretty shrewd because I don't think anyone would expect that to be banned on any, you know, political grounds. People on the right and left probably wouldn't have any mean grounds politically to say we need to ban that. But technically, under an in common use standard, it's not exactly common. Uh, people right. don't commonly own them for self-defense. And then there's also things like historical policies. Mean, I think it still be hard.
0: So, sorry, go ahead. Finish that.
1: I was just saying there's also things like, like the NFA, for example, that kind of arbitrarily limited the expansion yeah. of certain weapons. And so, it never allowed them to be common in the first place. They, they are they're fairly widely owned, depending on your definition of what common is. Yeah, but they down
0: to, like, <laughs> What do you mean by common? I guess would be another right. question because the Supreme Court found that the Supreme Court found that stun guns were protected by the Second Amendment. They uh, the actual holding didn't get into the common use argument. It got into uh, correcting Massachusetts Supreme Court about whether. Um, the standard is in common use at the time of the founding, which would only protect, you know, muskets and, and, right. and cannons and, and such things. But, uh, and said, that's obviously not, not true. It didn't get into, sort of, you know, the implication is perhaps that there are enough stun guns that they would be in common use for self-defense or for lawful purposes. And um, Alito mentions in his concurrence that there's only a couple hundred thousand of them out there and he thinks that means common use, but we haven't really gotten like the court to give a number uh, because a couple hundred thousand, well, that would include things that are in the NFA. There's millions of uh, legally owned silencers and uh, sound suppressors that are uh, registered in the NFA. So uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's still, it is a murky thing. It's not, it's not a perfect standard and it hasn't been fully flushed out just like we mentioned earlier right they've got a lot of flushing out to do with a lot of this stuff
1: yeah and you're starting to see uh it's funny you're starting to see I I don't know if you want to call them gun control but at least the gun control side is using the common use standard to their advantage by kind of whittling down the standard we've covered in in, uh, hardware band cases where they uphold hardware bands where they say it only protects guns that are in common use for self-defense self only defense. Yeah. and they and not only do they have to be for self-defense but they have to have to actually be documented and used in self-defense incidents for them to count right. so and so also pull up-
0: not just used but it, this has come up a number of times in the uh, ha- the magazine restriction cases where they argue that it's not just that you're using a 15 round magazine or 17 round magazine or whatever that might be in your gun. You actually have to shoot yeah. 17 rounds <laughs> right. in engagement. Right. It has to be documented in like a news story or something, which is just not right. uh, a very uh, common thing to happen in in terms of uh, you know uh, whether the, that's how they've been deciding it at least. And, and yeah. yeah, you're right. And I think that obviously gun rights advocates view that as a perversion of of the standard because it doesn't say in common use for only self-defense it says uh in common use for lawful purposes and i mean they've they've used it in different contexts a number of times but um the idea wasn't that uh, you have to actually uh, you know when the supreme court decided heller they didn't go through and list out all the statistics on how often guns are used (laughs) in in self uh, handguns are used in self-defense they just said this is what people say they um, essentially, want these guns for, um, and, and so it wasn't based on like looking at databases of of defensive gun use for uh, to to pr- to prove whether something's in common use for self defense.
1: Right, but to our our members' point that obviously there are a lot of questions still to be fleshed out in the common use standard, and perhaps that'll be one of the things that the Supreme Court eventually does because as we pointed out, judges are kind of coming to just decisions all over the place about how to do common use, what counts as common, how specific do we get? So it's a good question.
0: Yeah. Um, And I think that we got just two more questions and I think they're somewhat related. So I'm going to kind of smoosh them together here to finish this out because they're less about, you know, legal standards and, uh, and uh, you know, polling and stuff like that. And more about, um you know trying to reach people uh in terms of uh, where they are i guess as uh using arguments that are maybe outside of your typical second amendment arguments uh if, if the gun cont- the gun rights movement wants to expand uh it's it's footing and so the first one comes from william and he says uh, he asks um all right, he says, first, in the long term, I simply don't see an alternative to growing the tent and building a popular majority coalition spanning different political ideologies if those of us in blue states want to maintain any victories that the courts might grant us in the near future. <clears throat> and so he asks, are there any figures in the mainstream Second Amendment community who are committed to growing the ranks of gun owners in majority liberal states, uh, you know, meeting people where they are on political issues that are uh, irrelevant to the Second amendments um, and or identifying pro second amendment people who can appeal to liberal voters um, you know uh, so I think that's a good question right like what you know what's going on in terms of places that are never gonna have uh, you know a gun rights supermajority in their legislatures right you know, sure blue states like are there what's being done there Are there any groups working towards um, trying to, you know, make some inroads among uh, perhaps democratic voters or politicians on this issue? And the answer is yes, there are a number uh, of groups. Um, And uh, the first one that comes to mind for me is the Liberal Gun Club, Uh, in terms of this particular description. You know, they have chapters, all over the country, I've spoken to a couple of them, uh, and and they they try to do that exactly what these what, what William is asking about, which is appeal to voters and politicians who uh, are supportive of gun rights, but you know are generally liberal on other uh, issues uh, because they you know they don't necessarily see. Those things as being in conflict. Um, I think their their motto is uh, "all civil rights for all people," and so they view gun rights as a, as a civil right. Uh, and um, yeah, they're still a fairly small organization, right? And uh, but they do exist, and they are uh, certainly one of the more fascinating gun rights groups out there. Um, you also yeah. have, of course, groups that are dedicated to particular demographics like the national African-American gun association or uh, a girl in a gun shooting league. You know, there's a number of female focused uh, products, the DC project would be another one. Uh, now I don't know that those are, you know, they're, they're not necessary. Like the liberal gun club is about trying to get liberals who own guns to activate and be politically involved uh, and also give them just a space to gather together and, and, you know, shoot. Uh, but, you know, some of these other groups are they're not a, not that they're liberal groups or anything they're single issue focused groups but they they look at specific demographics that haven't gotten the same level of attention from the gun rights community um or you know, the gun rights movement as an organized thing and so these groups have popped up to try and satisfy that uh, that demand for for um, for these alternative groups, you know, there's Asian American gun rights groups now. Um, and, and there's, uh, there's also, you know, you'll see individual, um, content creators or, or what have you, uh, political accounts like, uh, a better way Two A I think is one that, that sort of, um, I don't know if they're what you would label them politically, but they're not your typical, um, Re- conservative Republican, right? Where you get right. a lot of conservative Republicans in the space.
1: There's um, also like the uh, Socialist Rifle Association and like yeah. the John Brown Gun Club. And there's all sorts of, it's interesting, small, like you said, they're usually smaller groups, but they're popping up all over the place lately, trying to appeal to different spaces in the political spectrum that are typically associated with gun rights. Right. Yeah. And see, like, I think, go ahead. I would say there's also it's not necessarily activating them politically, but you see people like Professor David Yamani, for example, who is a college professor that as part of his course takes college students to a gun range. That's part of his class and at least gets them exposed to firearms and, and lets them shoot and has them write about it and talk about how maybe it changed their mind or opened their mind or if it didn't explain why. So that's not maybe exactly what our, our members getting at, but that's another example of just a, you know, Mm -hmm. you don't usually think of college towns as bastions of gun rights. Right. So getting even just getting college students exposed to to shooting in a safe environment is, is a, a small step that a lot of people are taking.
0: Yeah. So there's a lot of groups out there and especially ones that have, uh, either come up or grown significantly over the past couple of years with, uh, the as part of the effects of those new gun owners that we've been talking about this and this could be sort of a sign of some of the impact that they've had um but yeah and, and look you don't need necessarily all uh whatever eight million new gun owners that were created in those pandemic years to turn into vote gun voters single issue voters or activists but if you have some percentage of them do that presumably will have a significant impact down the line. We're just still, uh, I think, waiting to see really big uh, signs of that. But, you know, for instance, Moms Man Action had their conference uh, just a week or so back. And, you know, they gathered a bunch of their committed activists in Chicago. Um, The vice president spoke there. The governor of the state signed a new gun control bill while he was there. That was, uh, and they had about 2,000 activists show up to that. So um, according to their uh, Instagram posts on it. And so that gives you an idea of like, you don't need 100,000 new activists. You can still have a pretty significant impact uh, with the right strategy. And I mean, Moms Demands Actions case, they have a lot of uh, funding, obviously, from uh, Michael Bloomberg and elsewhere that helps. But but the point is that you, you can still have that significant impact, impact with just uh, a couple thousand people who are really dedicated to, uh, to whatever because you're promoting. And so that, you know, you, you look at the increase in membership for both the Liberal Gun Club or uh, perhaps even more so the National African American Gun Association. They've really grown the last couple of years and how that all is going to play out. They're still just getting started in trying to be politically influential uh, in, in a way that makes their members uh, happy. And so... Uh, I think we're gonna. It'll be a while before we see the full fruits of that, but uh, it is. There are some signs. I, don't, you know, I, I think I was pretty pessimistic about it earlier, but there's still. I still do believe that that's that's having an effect and will have an effect going forward. Um, and then yeah, we had Paul Ansel was the last member uh, who sent in a question, and, and I thought it was, this kind of goes in uh, in line with the previous one. Uh, today, I feel that a strong argument against gun control can be made without, depending on the Second Amendment, uh, depending instead on rational evaluation of the current situation, uh, i.e. a lot of guns and the potential impact of proposed legislation, i.e. very annoying but not significantly impacting the number of guns available to criminals. And, uh, you know, he's saying that uh, perhaps that would be more persuasive than some of the uh typical arguments you hear from gun rights advocates, uh, especially when I think trying to appeal to that group that uh, William was asking about, these sort of non-traditional gun owners or uh, people on the fence about owning guns. Uh, I think there was a Pew poll that just came out. We might have to write a piece about this next week, but uh, they um, found that two thirds of Americans either own guns or are open to owning guns. And so uh, you know, there's a lot of people who are persuadable on this point. It seems, and and I do think Paul is onto something there with uh, this basic argument. And this is something that I think about a lot, actually, because you know, um, you see a lot of, especially on the gun control side, uh, mocking of certain ideas, especially around like protecting schools from shootings. Right? There was the whole uh, hardened schools, the single. Point of access thing, and uh, you see a lot of mockery around that idea because it doesn't sound like, uh, even if it has some effect, some positive effect, that it's not going to stop. The probably doesn't get at the core issue of uh, you know somebody trying to shoot up their school, right? Uh, you see that that brought up a lot as sort of a mocking comment on on gun rights advocates' point of view on this situation, but. But when you start to think about, you know, a lot of the proposals that you hear the other way, they they're just as unrealistic. If honestly, more so, because at least the hardening of school might have some impact. But the idea that, for instance, magazine limits, right? The the concept behind a lot of these, at least the political argument that you'll hear, uh, is basically that in-mass shootings, um, you know if the person has to reload more, more frequently that gives potential victims uh, like a moment to try and tackle them and look, that can happen in a mass shooting, but it's not a super realistic plan for stopping one. And also there are, geez, hundreds of, I would even put it maybe into the billions of magazines that you'd have to go around and collect to get to the point where a magazine limit would matter, I mean, you live in a state that has a magazine limit, right? Like how right. how hard is it for anyone who wants a magazine that holds more than uh, was it fifteen rounds in Colorado? Yeah, to, it's fifteen in Colorado. to get one.
1: Yeah, they're uh, they're pretty ubiquitous. <laughs> yeah, they're pretty ubiquitous. So. It's just, it just speaks to all, the, not just magazines, but most hardware bands. Even if you managed to completely cut off the supply, even if there weren't workarounds or whatever, they're still to his point. You know, something like 400 million guns already in circulation, at yeah, least tens of millions service. of those, at least tens of millions of those are what would be classified as so-called assault weapons. And as to your point, magazines, hundreds of millions, if not billions. So it's like you're kind of, yeah. you know, <laughs> you're not really going to put a and dent.
0: People don't even get the context. They think, oh, that's a lot of guns. I know that, you know, that's a big number. It's a lot of guns. Well. Yeah, and the estimate is there's what 25 million AR-15s and AK-47s and similar firearms. That's the National Shooting Sports Foundation estimates that the industry group, and um, uh, you know that that same number, the 400 million, comes from the Small Arms Survey, which is uh, that's their estimate for total civilian guns. Well, uh, the total number of law enforcement firearms in that same estimate for the United States is about a million. So you'd have to figure out a way to confiscate 25 times the size of the entire law enforcement apparatus in the United States armory in order to get all those guns actually off the streets. Uh, and, and like these are not, it's just, when you think about the numbers, they don't sound very, the, these plans don't start to seem very realistic. Right. Yeah. Um, and But it's hard to get people to think that way. You know, they think, uh, well, if the person didn't have a gun when they went to, they couldn't get a gun when they went to try and, uh, you know, shoot up the, the mall or whatever, then they couldn't have carried out that attack. Now, obviously, there are other ways of carrying out mass attacks, and they do happen, but guns are the most frequent. And so people just, it's a fairly straightforward, logical argument of, well, you just didn't have guns or didn't have that gun or whatever, maybe this wouldn't have happened. And they don't go further beyond that to uh, think about the practical questions of how you would even try, let's say 90% of people wanted to give up their, their ARs. So you found some, that's never going to happen based on the history of gun confiscation, you know, different efforts to confiscate certain guns or magazines in the United States um, because they have atrocious compliance rates, Um, but maybe, maybe they, you know, something changes and everybody wants to cut their guns and you got 90% off. You'd still have two and a half times as many ARs out there as the law enforcement community has all guns. That's for every law enforcement agency in the entire country. from local to state to federal. So, uh, it's just not a, these, these are often not very practical ideas that get put forward. Uh, and and I think that is an important thing to point out because it's, it's also something that doesn't get talked about a lot. Right. Um, right. Mostly you just get uh, constitutional arguments, you know, that, that violates the second amendment or, uh, you know, or just that I, that people wouldn't comply. Uh, but even if most people did want to comply, you'd still end up in a situation where most of these guns are, are, you you just have an almost unfathomable amount of firearms that you'd still have to deal with. And um, so I I think it's a strong argument. Uh, It does have that downside of, that's not how a lot of people think about these issues. But, um, but you know, uh, I think we did a pretty good job of getting through uh, everyone's questions. Um, And and so, yeah. what do you think,
1: Jake? Yeah, no technical difficulties aside, like you said, hopefully <laughs> that comes across seamless in the final product. But yeah, nice. uh, once again, happy to answer questions. I appreciate all the members submitting their their thoughtful questions. We we'll always love hearing what's on their minds, and uh, yeah. grateful that they're participating in the reload with us.
0: And and I and I think these were really good questions again. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm always happy to do these, uh, you know, whenever whenever we can. Whenever there's especially if there's like a little bit of a slow week. Um, we can hopefully just get people to, to send in what they're thinking about and we can it also helps us for future stories. like here's what everyone's thinking about. So let's try and keep on top of those uh, things. So it's super helpful for us. but uh, yeah, if you want to participate in the next question and answer podcast, if you'd like to ask one of the questions, uh, or if you want to appear on the show, we had a couple of people say they'd like to be on the show and I, hopefully we can get that scheduled for the next couple episodes here because uh, those are some of my favorite segments, the member segments. Uh, but if you want to do that, you got to be a member, right? So head on over to the reload.com and check out our membership options today. Uh, and yeah, that's all we've got for this week. We will see you guys again real soon. Oh, the devil's got no-